Gets on. Good. Great. Well, that was a, a good first half, wasn't it? You know, how to, how to follow that, I suppose, is the, uh, the question. But anyway, we're going to try. <laughs> and we're going to have a look at John 20. Uh, do you uh, remember the video that we saw earlier? Uh, all the words were taken straight from the Bible. It's on page 1089, if you want to look it up, or it will come up on the screen. Uh, we are not going to read it again. Uh, you can remember it from the, uh, the, the film that we saw earlier on. We're thinking about this question uh, that actually it was Jesus, before Mary knew it was him, asked her, who is it that you're looking for? Let me start off with a puzzle. If you've heard this before, don't cheat, but if you haven't, then get involved in it. Here's a scenario. There's an off-duty detective. He's walking along a street, maybe somewhere like you know, Gordon Road or... Tennyson Avenue or someone along Portswood Way and he walks by an open door he approaches, the front door is open and something's going on inside, he can hear and he hears somebody shout don't shoot me Bill and then there's a gunshot the detective off duty springs into action, he goes into the house, inside as he's into the front room He's confronted by a shocking scene. There's a body on the floor, a gun being tossed down, lying there beside or near the body, and three other people in the room. A judge, a doctor, and a milkman. Immediately, he arrests the milkman, says, come with me. How? How does he know it was the milkman? What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> no, he hasn't got an able saying, Bill, your milk. I'm Bill, your milkman. How can I help you? No, that's not the answer. Um, any other ideas? Sorry? He's a man, and the other two are women. Yeah. The judge and the doctor were women. The only man was the milkman. Now you don't, we, you know, it doesn't, you know, it kind of catches us by surprise, because we don't expect women to be judges and doctors. That's it betrays our inherent sexism, perhaps, or something. But the point is, what you're expecting kind of prevents you from seeing stuff. And we're thinking today about Mary particularly, but also John, who we read about in this story, he's called the disciple Jesus loved. And Peter, um, who's also in the story, we won't think at all about him. But there on that very first Easter Sunday morning, Mary in particular couldn't see what was happening because she expected something else. Just like us, if we don't get the puzzle. We expect something, and it's not that, and so we miss the thing that's right in front of our eyes. So as we look at verses 1 and 2, <clears throat> and 10 to 15, and we think about Mary's story to start with, we see that she's blinded. She can't see because of her expectations, because of what she expected. 
She was at the tomb. She'd seen Jesus die, or at least in the very last hours of his life. It may be, she was at the cross rather, uh, and she'd seen Jesus in the last hours, and it may be that she'd gone, uh, left the scene with Mary, Jesus' mother, and John, the disciple, when Jesus said to her, to, to, to John and to Mary, kind of look after each other. But she certainly saw him just before he died. She knew where the tomb was. She planned to finish the job of embalming, making sure he had a decent kind of, his body had decent treatment. And there were obviously other women, other women in the group of disciples, the other Gospels tell us, were coming to get involved in that task as well. They come a bit later. And she comes expecting uh, the tomb, she comes expecting to find a body, she sees the stone rolled away, and remember what happens? She runs back. We saw it on the, uh, on the film, it's in the passage. And what does she say? She says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. I don't know where they've put him. I don't know where they've put him. First time she says that. And she comes back with Peter and John. And then again, she's outside the tomb, we see it. And she's crying. Again, because she's so convinced that Someone's taken Jesus' body away. And again, when the angels say to her, why are you crying? What does she say? Second time, I don't know where they've put him. And she turns around, uh, as we saw in the, in the film, and she sees Jesus. She doesn't realise it's Jesus. Or whether it, I thought it was quite a nice way of kind of uh, portraying it on the film. It could be just that, or it could have been that he was standing behind her, and she, you know, and, and the, the, the rising sun is behind him, and she doesn't recognise his face, or for, for whatever reason. But but she sees Jesus, and, uh, Jesus, and, and still says to him, "If you've moved him." Tell me where he is. Even the question, who are you looking for, doesn't change her focus. She is so certain of something. What is she certain of? What is she expecting to find? She is expecting a body. That's the point. A body of someone she loved dearly. And we shouldn't blame her for that. She'd seen Jesus practically die. None of the disciples were expecting resurrection. It caught them all completely by surprise. And in a way, this story um, underlines it. It's part of the evidence here. But she was looking for the Jesus she expected. A memory to treasure. A body to respect. She'd so wanted to do this last one thing for Jesus, to anoint his body properly, to make sure everything was done right and in order so that he had a proper, decent burial. Now, some scholars, John Wenham is one of them, think that Mary Magdalene and the woman who anointed Jesus' feet in that story are possibly the same person, and indeed possibly the same person as Mary of Bethany, but that's, a, that's another issue. But if she was that same person, you can see that, that she'd heard Jesus say, she's anointed my, my, my body in advance for burial, and now she wants to come and, and finish it off. She loved Jesus, she cared for him so much, she wanted that. Now, many of us, many people, start exactly where Mary was. We don't expect a man to come to life again three days after they've been crucified. We don't see Jesus in those terms. We, we see him as, as, as Mary did at that point. Someone to be given great respect, 
a great teacher, a fantastic example, a tragic loss, a, a life that was uh, done too soon. I quoted the, uh, the Neil Diamond, old Neil Diamond song from the 70s, which uh, has a list of people, and then the chorus says, they've sweated under the same sun, looked up in wonder at the same moon, and wept when it was all done for being done too soon. And Jesus Christ is the first name in the list of names in the song. Uh, and like Mary, many of us can begin at that place. Jesus is someone to be respected. We'd expect a body. We'd be a lot more comfortable, perhaps, with a body in the tomb that we could respect and revere than the alternative. But Mary gets a surprise, and for her it's a wonderful surprise, because she hears Jesus' voice speaking her name. Mary, he says. She realizes he's alive. And she realizes, and we need to realize this, that that what Jesus has for her and for us is a relationship with a living person, not respect for a dead one. And that's what Easter Sunday is all about, that we can have a relationship with a living Jesus, not just a respect and honor and all the great things for a, a dead person. So that's one thing Easter tells us. Where are you? Where am I? Where are we with that? The thing is, we mustn't be blinded by our expectations. And for us as 20th century, 21st century rather people, uh, dead people don't come to life generally, and it is a bit of a challenge to get our heads around that fact. It was, by the way, it didn't happen in the first century either, as the norm. They were as smart as we were. uh, We are these people. That's why Mary was... You know, no one can blame Mary for expecting to find a dead body. That's what you would have expected. But it changed for her. So let's not be blinded by expectation like Mary. Let's rather be like John. And we read about John in verses 3 to 9. He's called the other disciple or the disciple Jesus loved. That's John's favorite description of himself. Now, again, scholars have looked into it, and it's very possible, almost likely, almost definite, that John and Jesus were related. That John the disciple was actually Jesus' cousin. Uh, and you can see that from, from the Gospels and, and, and through his mother and so on. I won't go into all the details of that. So if you've got the picture, <clears throat> John, we know, is a much younger man. When John was a disciple, he was almost certainly a teenager. We know he lived to, to uh, we know when he died in, in uh, Ephesus much later, or on the Isle of Patmos rather. We knew he was a, a figure in the early church and he lived to be a very old man. But it, it means that he was a, a, probably a teenager, and a mid-teenager at this time. Jesus is 33. Uh, do the maths. It means that as, as John was growing up, Jesus would have been a late teenager, you know, young adult male. He was, you know, he was a mentor to John. That's why it, it's probably why the phrase Jesus loved John refers to the, the family love, the relationship that they, they had. John had been with Jesus. John had known Jesus. Almost certainly he'd been like a big brother to him. And it says here, in, in John's written it, verse 9, he says that they, he still didn't understand what was going on. He didn't yet understand how it could all fit together. But it says there, he saw the cloths, his heart said, yes, he's alive. Everything he'd known and remembered about Jesus, everything he'd known about Jesus, every experience he's had of Jesus, it all suddenly snapped into place. And John saw the evidence of the grave cloths, and it says, 
John believed. He believed the evidence. And you know, maybe some of us are like that too. We've been around Jesus for a long, long time. Maybe we've known about him. Maybe we have great affection for Jesus. Maybe particularly we've seen Jesus at work in our, our family or our friends. And, uh, you know, maybe the church community. We, we feel, yeah, Jesus, yeah, we, we love him. We kind of know him. We, we kind of appreciate who he is. Or not perhaps appreciate who he is, but something about him. Well, like John, why not believe the evidence? It's very strong. What convinced John? What convinced John has convinced many people ever since. What is this evidence? Well, the first key bit of evidence is right here. There was no body. There was no body. Nobody produced a body ever. Uh, There's a story made up that the disciples had stolen it, but I can't go into all the evidence. But if you work it through, if there was a body, that would have been the end of everything. If anyone had the body or knew where it was, that would have been the end of everything. But there was no body. And John thinks, well, he believes. Hiding from that evidence and hiding from where that evidence leads us can rob you of all God wants for you. Don't hide from the evidence. Be like John. Believe it. You might not get it all, like John did in verse 9, but you could take the first step. So, don't be blinded by expectations. Believe the evidence. Let's get back to the story. Let's go back to Mary in verses 10 to 18 and see what happens to her. Mary is clearly uh, holding on to Jesus. He he says to her, doesn't he... um, when she hears his, his voice in verse 16, she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus says, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned. Actually, the word there is not strong enough in the NIV. It's the word ascended. And that's a very important word, actually, as we'll see in a minute. So Mary's holding on to Jesus. She wants to preserve the moment. Her teacher is alive. She's not going to lose him again. <laughs> You can understand how she feels, can't you? And he says, don't hold on to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. What does that mean? Does it mean that Jesus was saying, Mary, you mustn't touch me, because I'm going to whoop off to heaven, and then I'll come back, and and later in the day it'll be okay for Thomas to touch me and put his fingers, and it'll be okay for me to cook a meal of fish for others? Is that what? No, it can't be that, can it? We know Jesus ascended to heaven um, uh, 40 days later. Lots of kind of people have um, made suggestions, but I think what it's saying is that Jesus is saying, look, Mary, there's more to what's happening than just you keeping hold of me. There's a bigger picture here. And the third thing we, want to need, we need to do is to, to grasp the significance of it and get with the purpose. Because Jesus says to Mary, I will ascend to the Father. You see, Jesus is saying, Mary, it's more that I'm alive and your, your best friend or your teacher is now back with you in that way. He says, look, I, I will ascend to the Father. It's more than being alive. And Jesus wants Mary to tell that to his disciples. He implies to her that when he has ascended to the Father, she will be able to hold on to him. Not physically, 
Like every other believer ever since the Holy Spirit came, we have Jesus in our lives. He holds on to us in that sense. Jesus promised in John 14, John 15, he talked about how he would come to us and the Father would make his home, God making his home in us, Jesus promised. And I think Jesus is referring to that and saying, after I've ascended you, yeah, you won't need to hold on to me. I'll be right in you, as it were. But until then, there's something else. You've got a message to share with the rest of the disciples. And what's the, what's the message? Well, look at it there in verse uh, 17 and 18. The message is about some amazing changes that have happened because Jesus is alive. Do you notice that? Look at verse 17. He, he talks about the disciples. How does he describe them? My brothers. That's new. Before, in John's Gospel, he called them my servants. And then he called them my friends. Now, after the resurrection, he says, you're my brothers. Hmm. Something's happened because Jesus is alive. Why are they his brothers? Jesus explains. Because what he says? I'm returning to my father and your father. They share the same father. Verse 17 my father, your father. There's a, a new relationship with Jesus they have. He's now like a brother to them. He says there's a new relationship with God they have. This father that Jesus had been talking about, the relationship he'd been talking about, particularly only three, was it three days or two nights before, in the upper room, it's all in John's Gospel, he talked all about the father and how they would know the father and how he was going to the father and how he was giving glory to the father and how the father loved him and how he'd love them and how they would know the father's love. And Jesus is saying, that father, God, I've been talking about, he is your father now in this new and fantastically real way, is what he's saying. Why? Because of the resurrection. And he says, I'm ascending. And he uses that word ascending, that word that as Jewish disciples, they would have thought, oh yeah, oh yeah. Psalm 24, Psalm 68, talks about the king ascending into God's presence, taking his throne. And it's a picture of Jesus not just being alive, but something uh, much bigger than that. Him being king of all, of everything. Reigning, ruling over everything. And Jesus is saying, you're, by the way, the disciples, you're my brothers, you're part of that. You're sharing in that somehow. It's going to touch your lives. A new father. All Jesus said two nights before about the way to the Father, about the Holy Spirit sent from the Father, about Jesus and the Father being at home in us. It's all happened. Or it's all going to come to kind of into their experience. Why? Because Jesus is alive. What about us? What do we have because of the resurrection? What has the resurrection ever done for us, if you like? A new Father... God in a new way in our lives. A new relationship with Jesus, our friend and our brother. With Jesus in a new purpose as he ascends to take up his kingly rule, beginning with the resurrection. A new family of brothers and sisters. All has come, you know, all summed up. Jesus says, go and tell the disciples, Mary, that's what's happened. The program has become amazing, isn't it, as well? That the very first... Apostle, actually, because apostle means somebody sent 
with a message by the risen Jesus, the first missionary, the first person sent, the very first witness of the resurrection, the first one to take that message is Mary Magdalene. A woman with a history, but who's come to know Jesus. How about that? So what are we looking for? A dead Jesus to respect. There's more to it than that. Look at the evidence. Start with the uh, lacking body and, and start working on it from there. Start thinking what the alternatives might be. There's some loads of books you can read or conversations can be had. <laughs> Meet the person like Mary did. Know that relationship with his father, our father, his God, our God, with him in his kingly reign, Jesus at home in my life and yours. That's what Easter's about. It's fantastic. And it's all possible because Jesus is alive. And as we believe, as we say yes to him, so that becomes real in our lives too. That the death of Jesus made it possible, the resurrection, as it were, activates it. I don't know about you, do you do internet banking or you do banking, all that kind of thing? Sometimes you, you, uh, you, know, you, you make a payment, don't you? And you make the payment and it says it will arrive in somebody else's account, you know, like in two working days or something like that. Well, in, in one sense, only one sense, so don't shoot me down, theologians among us. In one sense, Good Friday is when that we were thinking on Good Friday. If you miss, well, I don't know we've got the, the tape of the message, but Lou preached Good Friday, and it's a great message about the price has been paid. The payment was made on Good Friday. If you like, on Easter Sunday, it's in our account, if we're trusting in him. So don't miss it through wrong expectations. Believe the evidence, and let's grasp the significance and get with this big purpose. Get with what Jesus says to Mary. Don't just hold him to ourselves. He's the ascended king. Be part of his rule and his reign. And go with it for his glory. I pray that we'll be like that as a church community in the coming year. Because Jesus is alive. It's a great day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the honesty of, of your word. We thank you that nobody spun it to make it look like Mary Magdalene got it all right first time. But that, Lord, you graciously drew near to her and you show us that even though we can start with the wrong expectations and, and miss it completely, you graciously still invite us into relationship with you. And, Lord, I pray that we may all know the joy of hearing you speak our name and us responding to you, saying, yes, Lord, teacher, master. And I pray, Lord, uh, we pray that you would just help us to, to get with your big purpose, to know that we're loved by the Father, that, that the Father is our Father, that we're caught up in the love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit in that community that is the Godhead. And all of that is available in our lives because of the resurrection of Jesus. And we just praise you and worship you and pray, Lord, that we won't miss what you have for us. Because Jesus is alive. In his name we pray. Amen.